church family, we're seeing a pattern that all who come to Christ earnestly plead of things from him. We see a Christ who is eager to entertain our requests. So let us now go before him together in prayer. Would you pray with me now? Merciful God, we thank you for welcoming us into your presence, not because of our worthiness, but because of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for your work in our church today. Father, we pray today for our dear sister, Brenda Korn, as she visits family in Oklahoma and has fallen this week. We pray that you would heal her body. Father, as her body aches with the pains of her fall, we pray that you would give her strength. Father, we as a church pray that you would heal her and take away her pain. Even today, we pray. Father, we pray together as a church, remembering that you've called us together to be a church, to be many members together in one body. As we meet together this evening, members of our church, we pray that you would meet with us, Father. We pray that we would have a meaningful time this evening. Father, we pray that increasingly, as we understand who we are in light of you, that our identity with one another would grow more profound. Meet with us tonight, we pray. Father, we also pray for our ladies this week as they gather together in the ladies' gathering on Friday night and Saturday. We pray that this gathering would be a meaningful and fruitful time in the lives of our ladies. Father, we pray that this would be an opportunity for older women to train younger women in godliness and to mentor one another, to pour into one another so that the women of our church could grow up in all godliness. Father, we pray that what happens this weekend would spill out into countless relationships throughout the year in the life of our church as women invest in other women and as our members invest in one another, we pray. Father, even as we pray these things, we are reminded that we are not the only church that is gathering right now, and we thank you for that. We thank you for the many churches that are around our county that are right now turning to your word to be taught. And we acknowledge that even while that many of them are, are different than us, that we can praise you for your gospel is present in so many of these other churches. Father, I think this morning of family church here in Palm Beach County, and I think of all the good things that you are doing in family church. I pray that right now, as many of their campuses meet together, that you would work in the believers that are gathering there. I pray that the gospel would be clearly taught there, and that the saints would be edified even this morning. Father, we also pray that you would work now among us. As we turn to your word, would you soften our hearts, God? Would you open the eyes of our hearts? Would anyone who is here who has blind eyes, would you open those eyes to the goodness of the gospel? To all of us who need to be reminded of the beauty of Jesus Christ. Oh God, give us a fresh vision of that this morning, we pray. Not for our glory, oh God, but for yours. 
And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning with a true story of a man by the name of Ignaz Simmelweis. Now, this name might sound strange because he was actually a Hungarian doctor who had a perspective, who had a, a point of view that could have changed countless lives. Simmelweis practiced medicine in the 1800s shortly before the discovery of germ theory. Through trial and error, Simmelweis happened on a discovery that, pa that patients would die less frequently if doctors would wash their hands and their instruments with chlorine. As you can imagine, this is a great discovery. The ins this insight could have just changed everything. And so Semmelweis saw something else that few other people did. He, had, he started having the doctors on his floor begin washing their hands with chlorine and washing their instruments with chlorine. And for a time, many lives began to be saved. But regrettably, and just remarkably, his perspective wasn't valued. Many doctors in his ward began getting upset because this discovery made it look like they were at fault for their patients dying. They were the ones to blame when patients died. And so they stopped washing their hands and their instruments with chlorine. They would choose rather not to do this and therefore save lives than embrace the perspective of Simmelweis, regardless of how true it was. Friends, truth matters. Valuing the right perspective matters. Looking clearly at a situation is incredibly important. I wonder this morning to you if you, if hearing that your perspective was off, if you would be willing to change the way that you see something, even if it made you look worse. Too often, we are like those doctors, choosing not to look at the truth because of what it says about us. But what about God's perspective on things? What does God see when he looks at you and me? What does God see when he looks at this world? What does he value? In some ways, by the way, this is just the most fundamental question that the whole Bible is just answering. God's word is not primarily a book about moral codes that you should live by. Primarily, God's word is a revelation of himself. It's a revelation of how he sees this world, how he sees us, and how we should see him. Friends, if there's any perspective that matters, surely it's God's perspective, is it not? Today I want to think about seeing things as God sees them, particularly seeing his perspective on who he saves and how he saves them. This is what we'll see in the book of Luke. So turn with me in your Bibles back to Luke. We're back in, in chapter 7 of Luke today. We'll be in verses 1 through 17, which Mark just read for us. Jesus had just finished preaching the Sermon on the Plain. And so Luke here gives this account of two different miracles. And we're going to try to cover both of them this morning. Jesus heals a sick man, and Jesus raises a dead man. 
passage spends far less time thinking about the, the healings themselves and more time focusing on the healer and what he sees. You see, as many people have said, these miracles act like illustrated uh, parables for us, living parables. They're, they're meant to illustrate for us truths about God, about what he, un what he wants us to understand. And in, in these healings, we see what catches Jesus' attention as he works. We see how he views the patients in his hospital ward. We see, we see the chlorine that he uses. We see that Christ compassionately saves through faith. That's what I want you to see this morning. Christ compassionately saves through faith. So here's the direction I'm headed. Just my three points this morning. I normally give them to you. First, I'm going to look at the faith that Christ sees. Secondly, the compassion he sees with. And thirdly, the prophet that we're meant to see. I pray that as we look at this story, we will rightly see Christ and how he saves and be drawn to him as we understand him better. So first, number one, the faith that Christ sees. The faith that Christ sees. Verse one, you'll see here, Jesus comes now to Capernaum. He's in Jewish territory. And then verse 2 we see, he meets a Roman centurion. Now, a centurion would have been a commander who oversaw a hundred Roman soldiers. Importantly, he would have been a non-Jew. He would have been a Gentile. He would have been an outsider to the nation of Israel. And this commander, we see, has a valued servant who is on the verge of death. He's about to die. And He's heard about Jesus. Uh, this, this centurion has heard what Jesus has done, apparently. This shouldn't surprise us. All throughout Luke, we've been reading time and again that uh, the word of Je what Jesus is doing just is spreading widely. Reports are just going out. Apparently, one of those reports reached this Roman centurion. And so now, hearing about Jesus, this man believes Jesus can help heal his servant. So in his town, he has... Jewish elders. Now, likely, these men are men of some authority in the town, with some civil leaders, perhaps, in the, the city of Capernaum. And he sends these Jewish elders to Jesus. He, he essentially has these insiders, these Jewish insiders, go and speak to Jesus on his behalf. They come, and they eagerly ask Jesus for help. And notice what Luke points to. He shows us first what the Jewish leaders see, what, what their perspective was. Look at verse 4. We read, and when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he, meaning the centurion, is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. So these Jewish leaders saw the good things that the centurion was doing. And, the re and they thought that this, this goodness qualifies him before Jesus. There's a, there's a sense here that perhaps they're trying to help justify him. Sure, he's a Roman, he's an outsider, but he's doing great stuff. Sure, he's, he's not one of us, but look at what he's done. He loves God's chosen people. He's been generous. He's helped us build this synagogue. And so they conclude 
He is worthy. Friends, this is the default software on the circuitry of our hearts. This logic is how we think that we should wash our hands to be clean. This is what we think. You might not say it so bluntly, but I would assert today that the natural man inside of you so often intuitively feels this way, this same argument, the same logic of these Jewish elders. That is, love enough, give enough, do enough, and you'll be worthy for Jesus to help you. Fellow Christians, test your heart, even if you're a believer here today, even if you've been a believer for some time. Just pause and test your heart right now. Next time you do something which is good, which, by the way, you should do good things, maybe next time you, I I don't know, help out another member at church, or you're generous with your offerings, or maybe you serve in a way that's just desperately needed in the church, check and see if there is any small inclination in your heart that says, see, look what I've done. This same impulse that tells you you're worthy, I would argue, comes up so commonly in all of our hearts. By the way, this would be a great conversation to have over lunch today with a friend. What specific things in your life do you do that you are tempted to look to for worthiness before God? Or that you could be tempted to look to for worthiness before God? And get specific, by the way. Think specifically about what you do and how you could start to think this way. Maybe it's a role that you have. Maybe as a pastor or an elder or a deacon or a teacher at the church or a volunteer or a coordinator in a specific area. Or, or maybe it's just simply coming to church. You just realize there's just something in me that walking into church, I just feel a little bit better about myself before God. I feel a little bit more worthy before him. Or maybe there's an area of your life where you're actually obeying and not committing a sin that other people are doing. And you've noticed that. That's a good thing. But because of it, you feel a little bit more worthy before God. Identify where your heart is tempted to think this way and say that you're worthy before Jesus. Friends, this is the false perspective of these Jewish leaders. But look at the right perspective of the centurion. Notice in the passage, when Jesus agrees to go help this servant— Uh, He gets close to the sick man's house in verse 6, and this Roman centurion seems to send another group out to him before he even gets there, coming out to meet Jesus. And we listen to this man, this this man of high regard, high status, of someone who's done significant good works, and we listen to what he thinks of himself. Look at verse 6. He says, Lord, Do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. Notice first, he directly contradicts what the Jewish elders had said. They gave a narrative for how great he was, and he fixed the narrative. This man doesn't take the bait of listening to the praise of man. This man knows who he is in relation to Jesus Christ. 
This man is honestly an anti-Pharisee. You remember the Pharisees? You remember what John had commented about them in his gospel? He had said that the religious leaders were, they loved the approval of man rather than the approval of God. Or in Matthew 6, Jesus says that the Pharisees were those ones who, who gave in order to be seen by others, to be praised by men. Well, this, this centurion, he just did the opposite. He didn't do what our, what our hearts are so quick to do naturally. He didn't eagerly savor the accolades of man. No, this, when, we, when he hears this narrative of how really good he is, he actually is saying the opposite. He's not happy to buy into it. Friends, I, I wonder if this could be said of you. How often do we hear what somebody's saying actually say, well, that's actually not the full picture. I know my heart does the opposite. I, I will quickly correct others when I'm misrepresented poorly. But if I am misrepresented well, I'll just let that one go. Not this man. Before God, he knows he's not worthy. And so then notice in verse 6, he didn't even presume to come to Jesus. So it wasn't that he was summoning Jesus in by sending these messengers. No, no. He makes it clear that his home was too modest for this Lord, the greatness of Christ's authority to enter. It's not even clear this Roman commander even understands all of who Jesus is at this point, but what he does understand is profound. Look at what he says in verses 7 and 8. This man sees Jesus' authority. The centurion says, But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. God has given insight to this Gentile outsider. He's saying, look, I understand something about authority. When I tell my soldiers to move, they move, because I'm the one in authority. I say, come, I say, go, I say, do, and they obey my word. You, if you say your word, my servant will be healed. When you say your word, it will happen. Friends, do you see with this perspective? Do you see what the Roman centurion saw? He saw that Christ had complete authority. He saw that Christ doesn't even need to be in his house to heal his servant. This, this man understands he's earned nothing and that God will work if God wants to work. That Christ will work by his own free sovereign will. That he is the one with the choice. Jesus is the one with the choice and the power to do what he wants to do. God will not be coerced into anything. He will call the shots and he can call the shots. Just say it and it will happen, Lord. Well, what's Christ's perspective on this? Jesus marvels. What must have been like for verse 9, Jesus to stop and turn to the crowd at this moment, to turn to the Israelite crowd, and to tell them to their faces, I tell you, Israelites, not even in Israel have I found such faith. This is completely unique. And once again, it's coming from an outsider. 
This is strangely similar to what Jesus found in his hometown of Nazareth, by the way. We'll come back to that in a minute. But friends, what Christ sees, this, this faith that Christ sees in this man's heart, is not based on heritage. It's not based on nationality, on whose father they had, this man had. It's not based on this man's doing, or this man's role, or his love for a nation, or on others' perceptions of him. No, the faith that Christ sees is a trust in Christ's complete authority and an understanding of our own unworthiness. It's this faith that makes Jesus marvel. This confidence in his, own, in his ability to save, this rest in his authority, leaves Jesus astounded. It's so uncommon that the entire nation didn't even have this type of faith. And so the man's servant was healed, verse 10. Jesus chooses to work through this kind of faith. Well, let's, let's move on and let's put these together. Look down to, now to point two. I want to tell you about the compassion that Jesus sees with. Move, Luke moves on to the next town in verse 11, soon afterwards, and a new scene is now put before us. In verse 11, he enters a little town called Nain. Now, noticeably, a crowd is following him. And you see there in verse 11 that this is called a great crowd that went with him. Literally, this word is a surprisingly large crowd. And look what they see when, when they meet in verse 12. Verse 12 says, As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, and the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So as they come into the gate of this small town, this large crowd following Jesus essentially meets this funeral procession. Luke 12 tells us in verse 12 that this, this funeral procession was a considerable crowd. Uh, this is a different word, and it was just meaning considerably large, what you would expect. It's expectedly large crowd for a funeral procession. And so these two big crowds converge on one place in the gate. Can you picture the busyness of this scene? What it must have been like for kind of all these people to just run into each other at the gate of this city? And at the middle of that busy scene is a grieving family, which Luke is careful to note. But actually, it's not even a family. The bereaved of this funeral procession is a single mother who is also a widow. So this means that she has already walked through the pain and the loneliness of losing her husband. And now she's lost her son. And this is her son's funeral. And to make matters worse, it's her only son. So in this society with, with a husband and only son gone, her helplessness would have just been acute. One commentator calls this dire vulnerability, catastrophic, because her future family line and legacy would have ended at this point. And notice just the, the irony of this moment. 
as she could not be more alone in her life, she is yet completely surrounded by this crash of crowds. I wonder if there's those in this room who have been profoundly alone despite being completely surrounded. Perhaps you've walked through grief and loneliness of losing a loved one or a similar loneliness of a different trial. I I don't know, the the loneliness of depression or the loneliness of abuse or infertility or whatever trial it might be. In this crowded moment, this woman was in grief, and here it is that we see the very nature of our Savior. Let verse 13 minister to you. Look at it. We read, And when the Lord saw her, just pause there for a moment, What a beautiful reminder of who our Savior is to us who are under his care. Innumerable people around him, crowd meeting crowd, pushing in against each other, pressing against, against the gate. And Luke says, Jesus sees her. Christian friend, your grief is not lost on Christ. Your tears are not missed within the crowd. Your heartache is noticed. Christian, you are seen by your Savior. And in this moment, Luke tells us that our Lord had compassion on her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. So being pushed between the crowds did not evoke from him frustration. Annoyance or being bothered was not what came out of him at this moment. No, his heart was filled with compassion. This word literally means sympathetic affection for her in her grief. What is the compassion that Christ sees with? Here it is. Here we see the perspective of our Lord when he sees our suffering. He sees with compassion. Martin Luther observes that this woman had no expectation. She had no merit, no preparation herself to receive the grace that's coming to her. He writes from, and he's preaching on this text, Martin Luther writes, from this we can draw the general rule that applies to all the merciful deeds of God, that they all overtake us without our merits, even before we seek them. He lays the foundation and makes the beginning. But why does he pity us? In this way, it continues to be the grace of God. Thus you have here an example, not of faith, but of the pure grace and loving kindness of God. Christ sees this woman in her grief and has compassion on her. It is unrequested, it is unmerited, and it is transforming. Look what he says. He says to her, do not weep a line that can only be helpful if he now has the power to help. And then in verse 14, then he came up and he touched the beer and the bearers stood still. Now, this word beer is a wooden stretcher that would have been used to carry the body. Jesus comes here shockingly close to being ritually unclean. To have touched the dead body itself was prohibited. So, for him to come and put his hand on this stretcher would have clearly caught all the pallbearers off guard. They they stopped in their tracks. 
when he does this. This was abnormal for a rabbi to do. Something was happening here. And in this crowded gate, in this bottleneck corner, Jesus has all of their attention. And again, with authority, he now speaks to a dead man. And he says, young man, I say to you, arise. Friends, the words of God create life. When God speaks, his words are always effectual. They always accomplish what they are set out to do. Luke says, the dead man then sat up and began to speak. Notice, notice how Luke, who's, who is a doctor, just explicitly reminds us, this man wasn't just sick. This man was dead. The dead man. The dead man sits up. The, the funeral was already underway. The body had already been prepared. The family was on the way to the grave. He was dead. And when Jesus spoke, he sits up. When Jesus commanded him to, he comes back to life. He didn't just stir as impossible as that would have been. No, he sat up. He immediately proved there was life in him by speaking. It was undeniable to all who were around him. Notice verse 15. Jesus then continues in compassion. He gives him back to his mother. Friends, this is a beautiful, powerful picture of the unmerited, unrequested, compassionate grace that is made to point us toward the gospel in worship. Earlier in our service, Carson read for us that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. That, was, that is true or was true for every person in this room. Spiritually, we were all dead, lifeless. We weren't just sick. We were dead, unresponsive to God, unresponsive to anything true. We were spiritually dead before God. We weren't running to Christ, asking for help. We were lifeless. We were unable to do anything on our own, unable to reach out to him. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Oh, fellow Christians, read this story and worship today. For the compassion that Christ had here is a mere foretaste of the richness of his mercy that comes to us as he gives all of us new life in the gospel. Yes, Christ is compassionate in our trials, as he was to that woman. But the greater trial that this story is pointing to is the deadness of our sins, the deadness of ourselves before God without Christ. If you are alive today, it is not because of you, but because of him. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, the Bible teaches that this, this problem of sin is not just a small problem. You are not just spiritually unwell. If you are apart from Christ, you are spiritually dead. No amount of good works will make you worthy before this God. No amount of trying to get to God will solve your problems. The message of the Bible is that we are separated from God in our sin, and that we need a Savior. Notice back up in verse 14, th those three words that begin that verse. Before touching the beer, Luke said, 
Then he came up and touched the beard. Literally, this is saying, then Jesus approached him and touched the beard. Uh, as I've other, others have pointed out before me, if you search this term to approach, you'll find that wherever it's used of Jesus coming up to someone, he is coming up to enact his authority. It's preceding his action with authority. Here Jesus comes with authority, and he uses that authority to bring the dead to life. If you're here today and not a Christian, let me just encourage you, speak to someone today about how Christ can give you true life. How looking to Jesus in faith, you can have freedom and forgiveness from your sin. For apart from this, you have no hope on your own. Well, this passage points us to the faith that Christ sees and the compassion he sees it with. There's a third element here, beloved, that I just want to spend just a few moments as we close looking at together. And that is the story which lies beneath this. Notice in closing, number three, the prophet that we are meant to see. The prophet that we're meant to see. Why do I say this? Well, here's the thing. If, if you look closely in this story, we find that, that Christ is actually revealing himself, his person, who he is, as the fulfillment of Scripture. After all, this is where Luke had started the book. If you remember all the way back in Luke chapter 1, verse 2, Luke told us that he would write a narrative of the things that had been accomplished among us, the things that were fulfilled among us. And, and so what is happening here? Well, Christ is fulfilling the promises of the Old Testament. I, I wonder if you remember back to Luke 4, 25. Now, we've been, it's been several weeks since we've been there just as a congregation. This would have been back in the beginning of February. I don't expect anyone to remember my sermons that long. So if you don't, that's fine. Luke 4 was when Jesus went to, back to Nazareth. And when he went back to Nazareth, if you remember, his hometown rejected him. They didn't have faith in who Jesus was. And so he gets up there in the synagogue in his hometown that day. And do you remember what he did? He, he preached a sermon, and he gave two illustrations. I wonder if you remember these. Luke 4.25, one illustration was with Naaman and Elisha. And the other was with Elijah and a widow. And the point of Jesus' sermon there was to show that the blessings of these two prophets came to those who were outside of who you would expect. They were spiritual outsiders that were saved. Well, now we get to Luke 7. And this is just positively amazing. If you'll just stick with me here. This is amazing of what happens in the text here today. Because if you were a Jew reading these stories that we just read, and you were to read them, you would just be overwhelmed by the allusions back to those same two Old Testament stories. Both of them. Elijah with the widow and Elisha with Naaman. The way that Jesus worked here in Luke by God's sovereign design, just echoed the way that God had previously worked with Elijah and Elisha. So back in 2 Kings 5, Naaman 
was this well-respected Gentile officer. Well, here, the centurion is a well-respected Gentile officer. And Naaman had a Jewish girl come and intercede for his healing. And here, this centurion has this Jewish, these Jewish elders come and intercede for, for his healing. And Naaman, like the centurion, doesn't need to meet with Elisha in order for that to happen. And Naaman was healed from a distance, just like the centurion's servant is here healed from a distance. And the point of both of these stories is how an outsider is humbled and is unworthy despite his high position and is therefore healed. There's all of these echoes of this story that, that God's people would have known from their Old Testament. And then, then you get to this story of this widow and her son. Well, if you had gone back to 1 Kings 17, you can go read it this afternoon. 1 Kings 17. The, the prophet there, prophet Elijah, meets a widow at a city gate. Does that sound familiar? And this widow's son dies. And it's a tragedy for her. And Elijah has compassion on this widow. And he cries to the Lord, and he resurrects this widow's son from the dead. And after the son comes alive from the dead, Elijah, 1 Kings 17 tells us that Elijah gives back the son to his mother. Those very words are used. And light bulbs start go to go off in our minds saying, wait a second, we've heard these stories before. And we realize, what we should know all along, is that the Bible is not just a collection of stories. This is one united book from start to finish. It is the revelation of how God is sovereignly working to fulfill all things in Jesus Christ. Jesus is not some, just some powerful healer, who's doing good works around Galilee or Capernaum. No, Jesus is showing himself to be the better Elisha and Elijah. Where Elijah and Elisha had to call on the name of the Lord for the power to heal, they were, you could say, men under authority. No, Jesus himself speaks with authority. He calls on no one. He himself has all authority. Elijah and Elisha were merely forerunners, merely shadows of this coming sovereign, divine prophet. Jesus Christ has come. And the crowds, the crowds see this. Look where the text today ends in verse 16. When these crowds saw Jesus do this, when they saw him raise somebody from the dead in front of their eyes, look what, they said, look what verse 16 says. First of all, fear seized them all. Okay, so it's saying here, they weren't afraid of death. They were afraid of the one who seemed to have power over death. Fear seized them all. Literally, it, it grasped all of them. It arrested them. They were trembling. And so they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. 
and God has visited his people. Friends, a great prophet has arisen among us. These people who had grown up in the town of Nain, notably Nain is a town that is just next to, literally just over the hill from Shunem, where the prophet Elisha had done his favorite, famous miracles. Perhaps, I, I wonder, if they had grown up hearing the stories of old, hearing how Elisha and Elijah had worked among God's people. And now, today, they see this with their own eyes. In front of the whole city, in front of crowd, packed by crowd, enough witnesses that no one can deny it, this man, Jesus Christ, must be a great prophet. He raised the dead. He has power over death itself. This was not just a prophet. They were forced to admit God has visited his people. Praise God. Friends, the people that day were so close to seeing rightly. This was not merely a prophet of old. This was someone altogether different. God had visited his people. Now, I don't know what happened with the people of Nain that day. We're actually not told whether they became disciples of Jesus Christ. But it's, it's fascinating what they're catching on to through this scene. Seeing this prophet, seeing God's work among his people. It's, it's almost like they prematurely happened upon the right perspective. It's almost like they accidentally started using chlorine to wash their hands before germ theory even arrived, right? They, they're seeing in this verse, God is at work here. This, this prophet is here. He's come. They were on the right track. They glorified God. They were in fear and reverence. They recognized the prophet. I wonder, if, I wonder where they went from here. We don't know. It's almost as if Luke gave us this account, leaving us wondering, what will they do now? Friends, let us not be left in the same place. Let us today... Seeing Christ, let us look to him in faith. Let us look to Jesus Christ today. Look to him in full faith, not based on your worthiness, not based on what you can do or have done. Look to him who is the Savior based on his kindness. Look to him who is the Savior who sees with perfect compassion. Look to him who is the great and final prophet, God himself visiting and working among his people. May this be true of us today. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we pray for the eyes of faith. Father, I pray for this room that you would give us here at First Baptist Church of Boynton Beach, the eyes of faith to see Jesus Christ, to truly see him, to see him in his glory as the great and final prophet, as our prophet, priest, and king. 
Father, eyes, give us eyes to see the great and complete authority that Jesus Christ has and his power over death itself. Father, I pray that you would work this in us, that you would remove from us any sense of worthiness in what we do or our role or what we've accomplished, but instead give us eyes that fix ourselves to Jesus Christ, we pray. And as you do this in our hearts, I pray that you would transform us. We pray this in the name of Jesus.